Have you ever had um, like a favourite film that you just watched over and over again and you became so familiar with it that eventually you would just fast forward to the best bit, which was usually the ending? You know, like um, the karate tournament at the end of Karate Kid. Or um, Dirty Dancing, the bit where he lifts her up in the air. Um, For John, apparently John Wright, it was the dogfight at the end of Top Gun. You just fast forward to that bit. Um, Or Rocky, you know, when it gets to that montage where he's training, you know, that's the place to stop fast-forwarding and press play because everything is going to slow down, everything's going to come to a head. And, you know, that is a bit like how it is with the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life. They all spend a massive proportion just covering the finale, that final week of Jesus' life. Here's a, just a slide showing the proportion of the Gospel in Holy Week. In John's Gospel, it's as much as 45%. And all four of these Gospels mark the same pivotal moment where this climax begins. It was the day that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem before a cheering crowd. And so if you are new to church, if you're new today, um, you have walked in at that point where we stop fast-forwarding and press play and everything slows down. This is the beginning of the finale. And today is a day where literally billions of Christians around the world are remembering this story and the events of the next week that changed the world forever. So it's a good Sunday to turn up for the first time, if that's you. We're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. It says, As they approached Jerusalem, um, that's Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, I don't know if you've ever um, been on a donkey ride at Skeggy or whatever, um, but if you have, I'm guessing that you didn't have crowds of people flocking to you, throwing down their beach towels before you and shouting Hosanna. Why did the crowd respond this way to Jesus? Well, a little bit of context. Um, it was at that time the, the Jewish Passover festival in Jerusalem, and literally um, the, the sort of like the pinnacle of their religious calendar, thousands of pilgrims would have been in town to celebrate the memory of Israel's historic victory um, when they had thrown off the um, oppression of the Egyptians centuries before. However, whilst this was a big festival, it was also, it had become for that nation a reminder that though they had once been a proud and wealthy nation, they had been led into collapse by a series of useless kings generations ago, and now they were left under Roman rule. And in many ways, it felt like they were enslaved once again, Um, under extremely high taxes and violent discipline. And so at Passover season, there was always this kind of like 
rebellious scent in the air. The regional Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, had come into town just a few days before Jesus with a shed load of soldiers and security basically to keep an eye on things because Jewish uprisings often happened around this time of year. And they, this, this kind of tends to happen because the Jewish people had a hope and an expectation that one day God would send a king in the mold of King David of old, a king that would be so anointed and so powerful that he would confront and defeat their enemies, he would save them from slavery and oppression, and he would usher in a new age of peace and prosperity. And they believed that because that's what the prophets in their scriptures had foretold. One of the last prophets to speak in the Old Testament, Zechariah, he even told them like where it would happen. And can you guess where he said You guessed it, in Jerusalem. He said, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, the Lord says, and there my house will be rebuilt. Zechariah had even given them a clue, an image to look out for. He said, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. And so that was the context. This city was like waiting to boil over. Pilate was watching for the next sign of trouble He just a few days before had to arrest um, some upstart called Barabbas. And now there was like sort of like noise about this person called Jesus, who apparently a few couple of miles away, there was rumors that he'd raised somebody called Lazarus from the dead. And so people were talking about him. So can you imagine being the poor Roman soldier, whoever it was, who had to go into Pilate's office and say, yeah, you know this Jesus guy, he's coming down the hill. There's a big crowd with him and he's riding a donkey. Pilate would have known that he had a problem on his hands. But what he didn't know, what he couldn't have known, was that they were about to witness events that would change the world forever. In 2,000 years, the the Roman Empire would be gone, but his name would still be famous, not because of anything he really did, but because he had a small part in this man's story, this man on a donkey, this king who was coming, righteous victorious and lowly, just as Zechariah foretold. And those are the words that I want to focus on today. First, righteous. If you'd have asked a bunch of first century um, Jews what characteristic they would most want to see in a king, I'm guessing the word righteous would have been like, bing, top answer. Because for the majority of Jewish working class people, life was tough and life was unfair. And the reason for that was because of the unjust rulers over them. I heard one estimate that a typical farmer would have to give up 60% of their harvest to land tax, tolls, tithes, and tariffs. Many lived one bad harvest away from slavery. Um, A rabbi at the time who's famous called Gamaliel is reputed to have said, the empire gnaws at our substance through four things, its tolls, its bath buildings, its theatres, and its taxes in kind. The Jews, they did have a a king, king of the Herod family, but he wasn't any use to them. He was a cruel and corrupt man, a puppet of the Roman Empire, really, who just feathered his own nest through all of these taxes. And any other sort of like privileged, powerful people in the Jewish society, like the high priestly family, they were more interested in protecting their privileged lifestyle than standing up for the poor. And so the people at large, they longed for this king to arrive and transform their unjust society. The prophets are told that he would do that, that he would reign wisely and do what's just and right in the land. That's what Jeremiah had said. And so that's what they were longing for. And I guess in some ways we today in this modern era can resonate with that longing because 
You know, we long to see leaders who are righteous and just, don't we? You know, like we're fed up of going on the internet and seeing the news every week in, week out. Another politician has let us down. Another member of the royal family has acted dishonorably. Another tyrannical world leader is causing desolation on somewhere on earth. Even another church leader is into a scandal. We long for leaders who are good. And if somebody could, you know, if we could just find somebody who could be trusted to be absolutely uncorruptibly righteous, if such a person existed, you would put them in charge, wouldn't you? And in a way, that is the good news of the gospel, that there is a person who's uncorruptibly righteous. He does exist already, and the good news is he's already in charge. The claim of the New Testament is that the righteousness of God has been made known in the person of Jesus. That 2,000 years ago he came and he started a revolution of righteousness that has changed the world. And though the world is a dark place, when you think about it, that's undeniably true. In the last 2,000 years, Jesus' moral teaching has not been matched. And it's actually the source code behind our, you know, underneath the foundation of our laws and our justice systems. And his example as a person who stood up for the rights of the weak and the disadvantaged and looked to take care of the sick, that was a novelty in the ancient world. But it caught on through him and his disciples. And now there are charities all around the world that do that stuff. There are hospitals with crosses on them all around the world. And ultimately, through his sacrifice on a cross, he brought righteousness to the whole world. He wasn't just the righteous king. He was the king who made us righteous. Though Jesus was innocent, perfect, blameless, upstanding, he stood an unjust trial 2,000 years ago before these corrupt leaders for our sake. In 2 Corinthians, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Reminds me of, um, there's a famous story from World War II um, where some prisoners of war were forced to work on a railway construction. And one day, the prison guards discovered that a, that a shovel had been stolen. And so they gathered up this group of prisoners, and they got their rifles out, and they threatened to kill them all unless somebody owned up to stealing this shovel. And eventually, one man stood, stood forward, and he was immediately executed on the spot. It wasn't until later that day that they recounted the shovels and realized their mistake. None were actually missing. The innocent man had died for the sake of the rest. And in the same way, Jesus died an innocent man for the sake of the world. The only difference in this story is that we were not innocent, but we were made righteous. Righteous by the righteous king. So next time somebody grumbles at you at work about you know, the fact that another leader has messed up and let us down in the news, I want to encourage you, don't see that as an invitation to kind of just go along with that and roll our eyes and, tut and moan, but see it as an opportunity to, to say something about Jesus, to share the good news that though we still see injustice in the world, there is a king who is righteous and just, and he is the ultimate king. He's not like those others, and one day he will come again and righteousness will reign forever. Because he is not just righteous, he is also, as Zechariah foretold, victorious. Rejoice, daughter Zion, he said. Your king comes to you righteous and victorious. 
And I've just got a couple of other translations here. You can see that it's, um, vic- the, the victory that it's talking about is a victory in a way that would save people. Having salvation is he. And this is why the crowd that day spilled out onto the streets and sang, Hosanna, which means our Lord saves. It's a saving victory. They were excited um, by these stories that they'd heard about this person, Jesus' miraculous feats. And they wondered if he could be the one to, to, to have a victory that would set them free. They're a bit like, um, you know, like a minor league set of football fans who are on their way to a big cup tie against a big team. They dared to dream that victory was within sight. But those of us who know how this finale pans out know that within days, their hopes were crushed and their cheers had turned to booze. And this would-be saviour was whipped and crucified before their eyes. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, apparently they sneered at him and they said, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. It didn't look like a victory. It looked like a defeat. And yet, describing these events, years later, the apostle Paul would write, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. And I guess if, you, you know, if, 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 if you're here for the first time, you just heard that for the first time, I just want to say, you did hear that right. It sounds topsy-turvy, doesn't it? And you might be thinking, you know, how on, exactly how was this a triumph? Jesus dying on a cross. It looked like a defeat. It looked like Rome had won. But the truth was there was more going on than met the eye. For a start, Jesus' real battle wasn't really with the Romans and Pilate and his accusers. They were really the small-time opponents. His real battle was with the kingpins behind it all, the enemies behind it all, the devil, sin, and death. Those are the powers and the authorities that Paul was describing, the age-old enemies that since the first encounter in the Garden of Eden had opposed God's will and his kingdom on every turn of this story so far. They were the ones that had caused all the pain and all the destruction. And throughout the Gospels, when you read them, Jesus revealed that that's where his real beef was. You know, his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom was clashing and confronting Satan's kingdom in all of the stories. When he cast out demons, when he healed the sick, raised the dead, forgave sinners, he was demonstrating that his kingdom was overcoming Satan's kingdom of darkness. But this week was the finale. As Jesus prepared for Good Friday, he said the devil must be confronted. He will be thrown out because this was where the decisive battle was going to take place. Somehow, on the cross, Jesus pulled off the ultimate victory against the ultimate enemy. How did he do it? Well, he did it by coming just as Zechariah had said, righteous, victorious, but lowly. Your king comes lowly and riding on a donkey. You know, um, in a few weeks, I think it is time, we will get to witness a coronation, won't we? Um, king Charles. Um, apparently, it's going to be a stripped-back strip affair. Um, after the ceremony, he'll just go back to Buckingham Palace in this like, basic little runaround. Um, and... Um, This is the last time it happened at the Queen's coronation. Amazing. One of the few things that we still do better than any other nation in the world is a good old-fashioned royal parade, isn't it? And the basic rules are, as far as I can tell, if you want to make somebody look royal and important, 
You bring in the horses, the fancy vehicles, soldiers, weapons, trumpets, and you make sure everything's shiny. That's the trick. And basically, we picked this up straight out. The Romans invented this. Apparently, Pilate, um, just a few days before Jesus rode into town, he came into Jerusalem from the opposite side of the city in the opposite spirit, surrounded by hundreds of Praetorian guards, you know, like the commandos, horses, spears, swords, trumpets, sending this clear message you know, to the, all of these gathered pilgrims, we're in charge. Don't mess with us. Don't cause any trouble. And of course, Jesus came the opposite way. He came on a donkey, accompanied by not even a proper donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. It was comical. For his royal guard, he didn't have soldiers, but paupers and children. Our king came lowly and gentle. And that's how he comes to us. Um, I was recently watching the testimony of um, Shino and Shania, members of our church who came to faith, um, and they've, uh, they're elsewhere now. But they were Muslim. And Shania, um, her story started where she saw this violent um, terrorist video of an execution, an Islamic um, terrorist execution. And she was so disturbed by it that she, she cried out. And um, she didn't know Jesus but he appeared to her in a dream in that moment. And um, it was incredible. She said she saw this man. She didn't know who it was. And there was a multitude of people coming towards him. And he was calling out, come to me and you'll be saved. And she didn't know who it was, but she found herself falling at his feet and saying, you are my God. You are my God. And then the next day, she had another dream where these words, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, she'd never heard them before, came, came from her lips. Amazing. That's how Jesus came to her. And the thing that, I, that, she, that she said that I just cannot get out of my head, she said, his voice, as he called this multitude towards him, was so loud and so gentle. That's how he came to her. Gentle and lowly, but loud and powerful. And he saved them. He saved her. She's free. And now she and her husband are evangelists. They lead people to Jesus every day. It's incredible. That's our king, irresistibly powerful, incredibly gentle, incredibly humble. And the most spectacular things that he did, if you think about the, you know, the events of Holy Week, they weren't displays of grandeur. They were spectacles of humility. You know, he was anointed a couple of days later, but not by a high priest or a prophet like the kings of old. He was anointed by a woman who wiped his feet with her hair. He was, in, he was like surrounded not by an entourage of servants. At his last meal, he himself got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples, doing the job of a slave. And of course, the most spectacular feat of all was the greatest act of humility this world has ever known. I just want to read you the account of Jesus' coronation ceremony. It's not going to come up on the screen, just listen to this. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knocked him. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. How was this scene a triumph? How was this a victory? Well, it reminds me of... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a documentary about crocodiles or anything like that. 
But um, the way that crocodiles kill their prey, apparently what they do is that they snap their jaws around it and then they take it down under the water and they roll it over and they break its neck and they suck it until it drowns and then they emerge from the water. It's called a death roll. It's an ugly, grisly business. But so was the cross. The enemy threw everything that he had at Jesus on the cross. He thought it was, the devil thought it was his finest hour. He thought Jesus was crushed by the weight of sin. Death looked to have the upper hand. The age-old enemies thought they had their grip on Jesus. But here was the twist. It was Jesus who had his grip on them. And he took them down. And he rolled them over. He broke their neck. He took your sin down there. He took my sin down there. And he left them there for three days. And he left them drowned. And then on Sunday, he rose victorious. In the end, Jesus won that victory with weapons that the enemy, that Satan would not have dreamed of using because in truth he didn't possess them. Sacrifice, humility, and love. Humble weapons, but powerful weapons. As Jesus breathed his last, the earth shook, the sky went black, tombs were burst open, dead people were resurrected and came out, and the Roman guard who was stood by guarding it, who hours before had watched this pathetic, scourged, broken man stagger towards his criminal's death, looked up and said, surely this man was the son of God. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Like we just sang, then came the morning that sealed the promise, your buried body began to breathe out of the silence The roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. This is how he won the victory, by stooping low. And I know for many of us, this is kind of like a hypothetical thing. But can you imagine, if you didn't know Jesus, if you didn't know anything about him, and you heard that there was a king who was all of these things, who was righteous, victorious, humble and lowly, a king who would die for his subjects and had the power to conquer death, you would put that king in charge, wouldn't you? You would beg him to be your king. You would go out onto the streets and sing Hosanna and welcome him in, wouldn't you? And the amazing news is that though we weren't there 2,000 years ago to wave those branches and say Hosanna, we can know that one day we will be. One day we will get to welcome him for good. One day he will return. And in Revelation, it says, on that day, those who have called on his name will be part of this great multitude. St. John said, I saw this multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. We'll be there doing this. And together they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because of this victory, we now live in an age where though the, you know, we await that final day and the devil, his final de- defeat and destruction, we await that at the end of this age. And because of that, we still live in a world where he has influence, where sin and death still taint our world and our lives. The decisive victory has been won 2,000 years ago. And the devil's terrible fate has been secured, just as our eternal fate with Jesus has to all of us who have called on him as our Lord and Saviour. And if you have yet to give your life to Jesus, um, but you've heard enough, 
and you want to be there on that day welcoming him, then you have the chance to make Jesus your king today. We'll do that in a moment. But for others of us, my hope and my prayer is that as we have looked at this king today, we have been reminded this week is an opportunity to welcome him now, to welcome him now. Our king is coming, righteous, victorious, and lowly. And so as we read our Bibles in the coming days through this week, as we come to closer on Thursday and share in the Lord's Supper and say, thank you, Lord, for by your righteousness, we have received righteousness through your blood, as we reflect on Good Friday, on how he made himself low for the sake of the world, and as we rejoice on Sunday because of his victorious power to raise him and us from the grave, let's be reminded that's how our king comes to us, righteous, victorious, and lowly. And because he is all of these things, so are we. We are righteous. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because he is victorious, so are we. Be thanks to God. Thanks to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because he is humble, so must we be. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so, you know, when we do these talks, there's usually some kind of application in there, isn't there? We sort of say, oh, here's what we should maybe do as a result of this. My application for this talk, if you really want one, is to just look at this king and say, wow, Hosanna to the righteous king who comes victorious, riding towards us on a donkey. It's amazing.